So, Counselor Bob, uh, we received an email from patron Veronica, and she wanted us to talk about in-home therapy, where you actually go to the house to provide therapy. And so I thought, since you're a therapist, we could talk about that. What do you say? I'm happy to talk about that. Okay. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I am a professor and a licensed therapist. Who are you, Bob? My name's Bob Gettle. I'm a licensed counselor here in Seattle. Yeah. I work in my own practice. And if people wanted to find you online, they would go to bobgettle.com? Correct. Bobgettle.com spelled G-O-E-T-T-L-E, Bob Gettle. It has a silent O. <laughs> yeah, right. So, and and one of the T's happens to be silent as well. That's a, <laughs> something I don't think you even knew about your... <laughs> About your thing. Actually, both E's. Or no, one E and one O. And one T. And one T. You could literally spell your name with with half the letters. Yeah. And that seems a little greedy to just gobble up all those letters. Oh, it's actually a reduction of the original. Yeah. Oh, is it? Yeah. What The original had like what some... G-O-E-T-T-L-E-I-N. Really? Yeah. Which means... Here's the thing for you. My last name means little God. Did you know this? Little... No. Little God. In what language? German. German. And... uh, I used to think that was really cool. Yeah. And now I think, who would name themselves Little God? I mean, where's the hubris? <laughs> I, you know, but I'm stuck with it. So I am a little God. I mean, it's sort of comical and grandiose at the same time. It, that's right. Yeah. It's like, I'm, I'm a little God. <laughs> you know? <laughs> okay. So email from patron Veronica. She says, hi, Dr. Honda. Let me mention how much I enjoy the podcast. Oh, well, thank you very much, patron Veronica. Oh, by the way, if you want to become a patron of the podcast and have your emails read more frequently, you want to become a patron by going to patreon.com. That's patreon.com. Go to Psychology in Seattle and become a patron of the podcast. If we get more people to become patrons, we will do this podcast much more frequently. So if you like the podcast, please become a patron now. Do it now. Become one of us because you can be one of us and you can come into the fold and become one of us. Okay. Let me mention how much I enjoy the podcast. It is certainly worth my patron support. I wondered if you might consider covering a subject about therapy in the patient's home. During previous podcasts, you have mentioned that you used to make home visits. Mm -hmm. I have been in practice for about 24 years, but have made only two home visits. I am currently seeing a patient who would benefit from a home visit and I am considering incorporating this into her treatment. She has struggled with a hoarding problem, and it has been difficult to get at the heart of the matter when she is in the office. What do you think about the potential benefits and potential pitfalls of home visits? I thought your discussion on the subject might help me think about more of the variables involved in a home visit. As an example of a potential problem, I realized that the patient's spouse would be at home during the visit since he is homebound, which made me wonder about the particular risks regarding protecting the patient's privacy and confidentiality. Any thoughts and discussion you could provide would be greatly appreciated. Keep up the great work. You provide an important, rare service for therapists. Any initial thoughts, Bob, on this? And then many, many yeah. um, all coming in at once. Yeah. Say them at the same time. Blah, blah, blah. Ah, good point. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, Yeah, they're a bit contradictory. Yeah, I could hear that. And there was there a reason to swear? I don't think so, but (laughs) got it in there. (laughs) Um, uh, Behaviorist treatments have a long history of um, treating the problem in its environment and its context. And I think hoarding, in particular, um, it's very hard to be effective without going to your person's home. So um, I think I think. The idea of seeing a client outside the office has become sort of like, uh, for reasons that aren't clear to me, a taboo no-no. And to me, that makes about zero sense. I think you should be clear about why you're going. Like, I've, I, honest to God, I went to a client's home about, I don't know, maybe four weeks ago, simply because I hadn't seen her because she had had surgery and could not get to my office and we decided that it would be good if I came to her home. Her home is actually, her home environment is actually part of her treatment. Though she doesn't have a hoarding problem. So I went and sat in her living room and petted her cat and had a talk with her the way we often do. And um, got a sense of what it is about her home that is um, problematic that I couldn't have without. Right. 
visiting. So, uh, and I'm, I've done many, many visits, had a similar kind of work situation as you would, you would see clients in their homes. And that was my first job when I came to Seattle was strictly home visits. So I wasn't a therapist per se, but a case manager, which is, um, not the same thing, not the same thing. No, but you could see the similarities. Yeah. Like there's some overlap there. And, and probably because of that experience, I'm not shy about going to clients' homes. Whereas I think if you've never done that before, yeah, that's probably going to seem kind of weird because probably most of your colleagues don't have much experience with it either. Right. Yeah. I find that most people who get worried about going to clients' homes have a bad, uh, um, erroneous perspective of what a client is. I think that it's like, well... You don't go to their house, do you? Because I get a similar reaction when I tell people I have my office in my home. I've had my off. I've had a home office for sixteen years, yeah. or something like that. And when I tell even a, I mean, when I tell non-therapists I have an in-home, I get various different reactions, which is fine because they're just regular people. But when I tell counselors and therapists that I practice out of my home. Uh, you know, a good percentage of them will just be like, huh, really? Well, uh, how is that? You know, uh, the first thing that people will ask is, do your clients just come to your door? And I, and what I, what I will say when I'm feeling particularly upset, um, but usually don't is, um, have you been, a th- let me just, so let's say you're that person. Sure. So, and you ask that question and then I, then I say to you, Bob, have you been to therapy before? Yes. Have you just randomly showed up at your at your therapist's office where you knew that they would be? Not even once. Right. So why do you think that f- clients do this? It's because you think that clients are quote-unquote crazy or irrational or they yeah. have bad boundaries. I, I have one phone number, I have one email address, and I have one home in which my office has been in. Right. I don't have a separate telephone number for my business. It's right. the same cell, cell phone number I give to my mom that I give to my clients. I have the same email address, kirkhonda at gmail.com. goes to my clients, to the patrons that or the listeners of the podcast. A lot of them have that email address. I have one. And it's never been a problem. Yeah, No client has ever randomly showed up at my house. There's never, ever been an issue. And because... Now, I'll say that I treat people that are not suffering from severe mental illness, but even the occasional person that I do come across that, for instance, has bipolar or schizophrenia or schizoaffective or something, they also have good boundaries. These are, you know, quote unquote normal people with the same kind of set of cultural understandings, like don't show up at your, at your therapist's door. And even if someone did do that, which they never have, it wouldn't be the end of the world. It's, I mean, it's not like they're going to kill me or anything. You yeah. know, maybe they forgot and it was the wrong time or so. You know, it's it's not that big of a deal, people. No. And if you have uh, a, a certain level of professionalism around that, it it's it can it's fine. And so, anyway, um, yeah, this idea of what is a client is right. really important. Um, I think there's a an us versus them kind of attitude. Right. And uh, most people, most clients, like most people, do not want to hurt anybody, want other people to feel okay and good around them, and uh, would not want to be a bother to their neighbor, let alone their therapist. Right. So, you know, if you treated people that were predators, yeah, probably want to have a different set of rules. Yeah. But most people in the world are not predators. Right. Yeah. And even of predators, the percentage of them that would actually do something harmful to you or something right. is probably pretty slim. It's probably slow. Yeah. yeah it's slim. So, so, right. So that is what I'll say about that. The thing about hoarding that I'll say is that my colleague, at, uh, one of the other professors in the couple and family therapy program uh, in which I work, Dr. Jennifer Sampson, she is one of the preeminent hoarding specialists in the world, really because it's a, an emerging area in our field. And she actually is the founder and the, and the, the runner of the hoarding project, it's called, that's in Tacoma. 
and it pulls together. It's a, basically it's a wraparound service and also conducts a lot of research. She's published a lot of articles on it. She's, she's been on TV last summer. She, as my coworker, she was gone almost every week in a different city giving talks on hoarding. There are, you know, a good number of people that are suffering from hoarding and there is almost no, none of them are being treated well. Mm -hmm. There's this notion that you just do this intervention where you go into their house and you just rip everything out. Statistics show, research shows that the vast majority of people, when you do that to them within six months, they're worse off than they would have been if you didn't do anything. Mm -hmm. Now you cleaned out their place in one day, fine, but you haven't, you haven't uh, healed or treated the underlying issue that is resulting in the hoarding. And it's, and it's a traumatic event for them to, mm -hmm. to do this to them. And it just makes them more problematic so that they become even more of a hoarder. So it requires lots of compassion, lots of time, lots of people. You need, sometimes you need the fire department involved because there's like, code violations or health issues. You need family. You need to take a slower road. Depression can be in play. PTSD, sure. other kind of mental health issues, chemical dependency. You got to get that. You know, it's a long-term picture. It, the hoarding is a symptom. It's not the thing to get rid of. And I, the mistake that people make that, that Jennifer Sampson will tell me is that people consider it to be just like, a slightly extremer version of our own hoarding. Cause everyone can yeah. relate to like, Oh, I'm, yeah, I'm yeah. kind of a hoarder. I'll save this paperclip. Yeah. I, I've had this box of like, actually, actually is the box in this room? No, it's right outside the door. I'm, I'm finally getting rid of these t-shirts that I've been holding onto from college, you know, at the university of Washington, like you at an event, I would get a t-shirt <laughs> and it, it has like a tremendous amount of memory for me. Sure. But at a, as a 45-year-old person, uh, you acquire a lot of T-shirts in your life, you know, family reunions, this sort of thing. And I just decided like I, I don't want to hoard these T-shirts that I'm never going to wear again. Right. And I just I, – I come across them when I move every six years. And I'm going to just give them away. Yeah. Take a picture and move on, you know? And so uh, we can all relate to that. And so there's this mistake, in, even in our field, of just like, well, they're just an extreme. They just, need, they just need pressure to, like, get rid of stuff in the same way that I need pressure to get rid of stuff sometimes. But again, it's not, it's not that simple. So that's what I'll say about that. And so the, the patron, Veronica, writing in, saying, I'm treating someone with hoarding. She's smart to say, you know what? Maybe I should actually go to the house. Yeah. I'll, I'll extend that by saying that she should actually go to the Hoarding Project website with Dr. Jennifer Sampson, or even, I've even directed, I maybe even directed patron Veronica when she first emailed to talk to Dr. Jennifer Sampson because it's hard to get good uh, advice or guidance regarding how to treat hoarding. And so you really need to speak with an expert in that field. Okay. So, um, you touched on a number of things that I wanted to talk about, and I'll just kind of reiterate it, Bob, is that home visits can be superior to office visits in some ways, in that you can be in their world. They're more potentially comfortable in their world than they are coming to your office. Also, you can treat people that can't leave their house. Your client couldn't come into the office, and so... Should treatment just end because they can't do that? Now, some might say, well, why not do it over the phone or Skype or something? So that's an option too. But we all know, and you just made a face, I'm guessing that indicates it's a substandard version of therapy. When you're face-to-face, -face, you really get a much better idea of the state of the, of the client. And they get a much better idea of the state of you. Yeah. So, so there's a lot of benefits to that. You also learn a lot about a client when you do an in-home. You see the way that the, the place feels, you know, <laughs> like if it's chaotic or if it's calm. You also get a sense of the way that the system is. And as a systemic thinker, and you're starting to move into family and marital counseling. And so 
that's, or did you say family or, or just couple? Just and couples. Just couples, yeah. Well, as someone who treats families and, and couples, I can tell you that it's, it's common for us to believe in systemic thinking. And to understand an individual, you must understand the system yeah. and vice versa. And so when you go to the house, sometimes you get an idea of that. And uh, so that's another thing. Um, you were actually the uh, catalyst to me doing in-home therapy back in the day. Oh, right. Because your friend, yeah. who was a therapist, was working for an organization yeah. that was doing in-home counseling. And then he asked you to, to, to start doing This was right after we graduated. Right. And we that's were right. still working at our agencies. And yeah. we were trying to get our private practice off the ground. And he was like, hey, well, there's this gig that's kind of like private practice because yeah. you're a contracted therapist, but you work underneath someone and they give you clients and you don't get paid perhaps as much as in private practice, but you get, you get paid a lot more than you do yeah. at, your, at your agencies. And so you went and, you're, and then you came to me and you're like, oh, maybe you'd be interested in this. And I remember thinking like, no, I, I do not want to do that. In-home therapy, I want to be in an office, yeah. like the classic deal, you yeah. know? I want to I have my artwork and my plant and my, my planner and I want my couch and I don't want to go to some random person's house yeah. and be a therapist. It feels funny to me, you know? It just didn't, it felt like... It felt like I don't know how to say this, like low class therapy or something. You know, yeah. I wanted to I wanted to be high class therapy, and so I, at first I was like no. But as I may have said this on the podcast before, a good way to build your career in whatever you're working in is when you're on the fence, just say yes because you just never know what is going to be wonderful and what's not, and you don't know until you try it. And that's what I said to myself. I said. I don't want to do it, but I don't have any huge reason to say no. And I do have time and I do have a lot of uh, gumption to try to get my career off the ground. Yeah. So if there's a 3% chance that this is going to work, I might as well try it. And long story short, it ended up being a huge, wonderful thing in my career for me in terms of getting my private practice off the ground. Because pretty, very quickly, I had a lot of clients that I was going in home and was getting paid two, three times more than I was getting paid in my agency. And then I quit my job at the agency. And then that was that. And then a lot of these clients that I was doing in-home therapy for transition that were because they're state contracts, right. but they're only for like a month or two. And then a lot of those clients would transition into private practice. All of, all of my first private practice clients, I'm guessing, came from that from that vector. And so... Right. I remember. Yeah. And you didn't do it, though, right? You never took on a case. Why didn't you do it? I don't remember why. It's so long ago. That was 1998. Well, it was family therapy, for one. I have no training in that. Right. So I'm guessing that wasn't a, a appealing to you. Because uh, uh, it's, it's almost all teenagers who are defying the rules at home and running away and using drugs. It's 99% of the cases are, are those kinds of cases. At least back then it was. No, I'm, I'm sure you're right. I, I wonder if that was sort of part of it, too. Yeah. Uh, I'm not good at working with young people. Well, and you didn't really want to work. And was not a strong interest of mine. Where it was like right down the middle of, of my career, especially back then. Right. It's like almost all of my clients in the beginning were teenagers. Teenagers and, and families. And younger, young, you know, tweens and this sort of thing and their parents. At, at family services down in Federal Way, was it all? Was yeah, it for the kid? most part. I mean, I had some... Some grade school kids, but yeah. the vast majority of my clients were 13, 14, 15, you know. I, I had an odd, you know, uh, adult or, or couple yeah. client at, at the agency, but the vast majority were teenagers. In my later career, I almost, in fact, right now I'm not seeing a single teenager. I, I, I only get referrals and, and really just prefer individuals and couples. So... That's all I'm seeing currently. It's yeah. been kind of a slow transition over the over 20 years, but um, but anyway. So yeah. so yeah, it's right up my alley. But I thought this is this is not really what I wanted to do. But I instantly liked it because I once I tried it, I realized oh this isn't so bad. And in fact, this is actually kind of nice because one the. <laughs> When you walk into a client's house, you just have to be, I guess you just have to be kind of um, 
how do I put it? You have to be confident, I guess, to do in-home therapy because you're walking into a situation where you're not in control. This isn't your office. You're, you have no control. So you have to adjust and you never know what you're walking into. There would be situations where I'd walk in and the mother would be there with the one child and there'd be no pets and they'd say, oh, we're glad you're here. Sit down. We'll have our you know one or two hour session, and then I'd walk out. It's very clean, no weirdnesses. I'd have other situations where I'd knock on the door, and neighbors would be walking in and out. There would be uncles and aunts. The mom would come to the door and say, "Oh yeah, I forgot you were coming," and uh, I'd say, "Is this a good time? Sure, come on in. Do you want to hang out and watch a movie with Grandpa for a while?" And and then I'd sit down and the dog will have gone to the bathroom on the couch and and there might be i heard horror stories of like people looking behind the couch and there'd be a dead cat i'm not even joking (laughs) and so yeah or uh, a home that's down a dark alley at the middle of the night and stuff and so there there was a wide range of situations and so I realized I have to be extroverted. I have to be more like on my toes. I can't I can't be shy. Yeah. I have to be like, "Hey, how's it going?" And then at a certain point I might have to say, "Okay, so if we're going to have our session, I'm going to have to ask that the people not involved maybe go to a different room or maybe we can go to a different room or when what's good for you?" Yeah. And 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 if I'm getting pushback, I might be like, "Well, maybe I could talk with a teenager outside. Maybe we could go for a walk or something." Like you you have to adjust very quickly uh to to the situation. And so, uh I realized and that's not really my style. I'm not really that kind of guy. At least back then I was even less that kind of guy. Yeah. And so that was challenging for me. Yeah, good thing to learn. Yeah. But, you know, I think I think it's it's uh it, it was it was good for me. And some of my most memorable family sessions have been in that venue of been in home. Like I show up and the daughter had died oh, like, God. like the, the night before or something. Oh, man. And, uh, or I show up and the kid just had a suicidal attempt or something. Yeah. Or, I don't know. Just, just I, I have a lot of interesting clinical memories from these in-home sessions because each house felt different. Yeah. You know, each each house had a different feel to it. Each family had a different feel. The other thing I'll say is that uh, if you want families to show up, if you want family members to show up, doing in-home will increase. Uh, you know the chance that they'll be there. Yeah. <laughs> it's a little harder to like gather everyone up, get them in the car, drive down the office. Blah, 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 blah. It's so much easier to say like, yeah, sure. Come over at five on Friday. And when I show, when I would show up, my, the clients were, they would last longer. Mm-hmm. They were, again, they were more likely to be there. The teenager, if they were oppositional, were, were more likely to be there. You know, trying to get a 14-year-old defiant kid into the car and get him to the office is harder than just saying, just be home, <laughs> and then the therapist walks in. And I, I just have, uh, just, I'll go down another little jag here, of walking in, sitting in a teenager's room and like playing video games with him or asking him about something on his wall or, you know, just being there as his sister is making fun of him and then, and then going, Oh, okay. I am starting to get a sense of what's going on with this situation. There's just, there's just a lot of benefits to it. Um, so, uh, but there are obviously drawbacks like, again, you're not in control. Like I'll give an anecdote here is one. And this happened a lot. Actually, when I would go into the home, the TV would be on loudly. Oh, I learned, you learn a lot about like the common household practices when you go to a lot of in-home. And what I learned was that a lot of families just have the TV on loudly and no one's watching it. Really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm guessing you don't do that. Uh, are we usually watching it if, uh, yes. No, we do not do that. There's plenty of people who do that. They, they walk in their house, they turn on the TV, and they walk away. Wow. And it just, I don't know, it's just like soothing to them or yeah. I, I don't know what. Yeah. 
but it's on. And so I would walk in the, and, and people have huge TVs. That's the other thing I realized. It's like a lot of people have, and this is back before yeah. the, the plaz. This is a right around. It's before LEDs. It was yeah. like the projection. projection. People had, and I just, I'll never forget this one family because I learned that if I didn't, if I didn't put my foot down and say like, so could we, and I would always ask nicely. I said, so, cause in my back of my head, I'm like, turn your TV off. You know, like, right. like how do you think with the, t- plus yeah. you're talking to a guest at the very least, like turn sure. it off. But in the front of my head, I'm like, be nice. And so yeah. I, I would say like, so the TV is very distracting to me. I'm really sorry. I'm kind of ADD. If I, if the TV is on, I, I will want to look at it. So if you could turn it off, it'll really help me out. And which is true, Absolutely. completely true. I did, I left out the judgy part. You know what I mean? Always a good idea. Yeah. And so I, with this one family, I remember, and it was just, just me and her, just the mom, just sitting down at the kitchen table. And I, and I said that deal. And she said, no, how dare you come into my house? Tell me, to turn off my TV. And I was like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and so sometimes, you know, you run into situations like that right. where it's, it gets weird yeah. where, you-, you know, in your office, you can, control things yeah you can right you'll never have to deal with that issue you get home court advantage well so what did you find yourself doing when she said no do you remember well i instantly thought wow the relationship is not how i thought it was Uh, i thought we were cool yeah apparently we're not or is this a cultural thing because she wasn't of my ethnicity yeah and so i thought is this a cultural thing did i just step in something you know right it, by telling her what to do in a in a passive way, is that bad, or is TVs a big deal to you know a certain group of people? Right. I don't know. Yeah. Um, do is there something going on here that I'm I'm not aware of? Right. Have I not properly built rapport with this client yet right. to to withstand you know this sort of thing? I don't know. Those are really good questions because some of the people would. They would flip to a polarizing kind of judgment. Right. How dare you tell me? How dare me? Kind of thing. Right. Right. Because our common cultural reaction is this person's a jerk face. Right. They're being oppositional. Right. You know, they're being a dick and that's that. Yeah. But as therapists, yeah. we're trained to think more meta about the context, the reasons. Right. And to assume as a humanistic person myself and i think you are too that people are good and come from good places and if they react in strange and even aggressive ways there's usually some kind of logic behind that you know that we could all understand where they're coming from if we understood where they're coming from i think the best therapists have cultivated or just have naturally um an attitude of curiosity right yeah when I'm at my best, which is not often, I, I, I'm, I'm purely curious. <laughs> okay, but when you say you're not at your best, maybe when you're not at your best, you're not 100, but maybe you're 95. Yeah, yeah. well, you see, would never say that. Well, now, see, now you're you're doing it to me, and that's nice. Um, okay, let's talk about the ethics. The ethical considerations are thus: you want to discuss and disclose and document the implications to the therapy with the client. For instance, you would tell the client, or if you do in-home therapy, you want it in your disclosure statement, and you'd have some kind of discussion around, look, this is your home, it's not my office, therefore, I don't have control over the environment, and I can't guarantee that this session is going to be confidential because if your relative is in the room next door and you don't tell me about it, I or that's just the way you want it to be. I can't guarantee that that relative can't hear every single word we're, we're saying. Of course. I also am arriving at your house and your neighbors might ask questions. Who is that guy? Right. Which would happen because sure. I'd be walking up with a briefcase looking official and people yeah. would look at me funny and like, who is that dude? You know, you're from the government, you're selling something or, or, <laughs> yeah. but people actually rarely thought therapist, right? right. Because, right. Right. So it's usually, or, or religious yeah. or, yeah. Um, so you want to have that discussion with your client and you want to potentially have it written down and you definitely want to document that you talked about it because if there is a confidentiality problem down the line and, the client is harmed by that and 
decides to take action against you, yeah. you want to have that you had discussed that and the client consented to right. that arrangement. That'll help you. And, and plus, you just always want to inform your clients of situations before before you go down that road. Right. So there's that kind of things. Um, you know, what occurred to me uh, about my client that I mentioned earlier is that um, I uh, fell short of, but not too far short of, inviting myself to our house when I made the suggestion. I would be happy to come. And at the time, I was well aware that it's a very high-demand situation wherein a person who might not want to say yes might somehow feel compelled to say yes because they saw me as some kind of authority. I don't think of myself as an authority, but that's the nature of the relationship. And certainly in my own experience as a therapist, it seems as though they're the boss. So we did talk about how does that feel? Does that feel okay? Um, And that might be the best I could do because there's probably no guarantee that that wouldn't feel like a high demand situation for a particular client. And while I might have the best of intent, it can still land that way. Right. So definitely a consideration. Yeah. And you have to use your best clinical judgment about yeah. that and gauge the response of the client. And also, as I'm guessing you did, because it sounds like it, tell the client, look, you don't have to agree to this. Absolutely. No big deal. Just yeah. throwing it out. So there's a way of wording it to a client right. so that they have the way out of it. Yes. More than likely, clients will want you to come to their house and don't feel like they can ask you to do that. So, And I have the sense they're often surprised that, you would be, that I would be willing to do such a thing. Right. Um, and I think what it does is it communicates a level of care beyond you're my client, is you're a person. Right. And I'm a person too. And I, you do matter to me beyond... Just um, this. It's uh, it's a setting. big yeah. It's a you're 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 you you care enough to make that extra effort yeah. to help them right right. And so this sort of thing can actually be just in and of itself yeah. a furtherance of the relationship, yeah. which we all know is the primary element in the outcomes of therapy. The other thing to think about ethically is role confusion, is that when you are in your office, it's, all, it's very clear your role. You are the therapist. You walk into their house, many people start considering you a friend or a family friend or not a therapist, but maybe like a physician, which is a different kind of a role, you know, doing a house call. Right. Or... I don't know, just or like a religious leader or something, you know, they'll often do house calls. Right. And so they will have a confusion potentially of your role, which might, and you might even have a confusion of your yeah. role. And you have to pay more attention to w- how to manage right. and navigate those, those kinds of things. Like, for instance, a client might be more likely to invite you to a wedding or something right. or more likely to give you a gift right? or more likely to introduce you to their neighbors or, or whatever. Right. And not that there's anything wrong with any of those things, but no. it, it, it creates just more thought about that. Yes. As a, as an anecdote, I'll tell you that I was working with an immigrant family from rural Mexico and they gave me every time I, I came, they would always give me tamales. Uh, they're the they're sort of I I don't they're they're cornbread burrito kind of things. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? I do. And yeah. they're really good. Yeah. When they're homemade, uh-huh. like these ones were. My mouth is watering just thinking about them. You know, they'd be like barbecue pork tamales wrapped in the banana leaf. I think it is, and. They were just so good. And every time they would give me a batch of these because they considered me, because this is back when I was, you know, 30 or something. And they said, oh, well, he's a young man. He needs to eat more. You know what I mean? <laughs> and so so they, they would give me these. And at first I thought, no, I, I can't take these. But this was one, an immigrant family that was getting free therapy from the state because the state was paying for it. And... They were the nicest people. Sure. And I was an American coming into their house, and they really wanted to connect with me and really wanted to express that they were thankful of me spending my time helping them, even though I'm getting paid for it. Sure. But, 
but I really cared about these people. And so in another family, I would have said, no, no, don't worry about it. And I often did. And they, you know, there would be offerings, but with this family, I, I gladly accepted one cause I liked to eat them. Yes. But the other thing was, was it just felt right to me. Yeah. It felt like a, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know how to describe it, but it felt like it was an honoring of them. It allowed them to, I don't know, have some self-esteem around uh, offering something to me yeah. in exchange for me giving something to them. Right. Do you, do you think I made the right call? Oh, absolutely. I think to say no would have been damaging. Right. Yeah. Right. And so that's always the thing you have to think about is, is the pros and cons right. of that kind of thing. You're very lucky that you liked what they offered you. <laughs> I once went to somebody's home and she offered me a soup that I did not like. And oh. is very, and to say no would have been offensive, and to eat it would have filled me with disgust. Guess which one I chose? You said no. No, I ate it. <laughs> oh, you ate it? I did. Oh, was, was it gross? It was indeed. See, you know, soups can go either way. Oh, it went the other way. Yeah. <laughs> and did you? Oh man, what what was what, why was it bad? What was bad about it? Uh, uh, bone and gristle. Oh. A texture that at the time I found abhorrent, oh. sort of somewhere between paste and concrete, and um, oh. uh, flavors that at the time really turned me off. And so it was sort of viscous. You're saying? Oh yeah, that's a word. Like like uh, like thick, 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 oh. thick. Yeah, thick and non delicious. God. And there was some gagging involved, which oh. was very hard to hide. No. Did, so, did she notice? I think she must have. Oh, no. One thing you can't get out of. Now, at the time, <laughs> I mean, I don't know what I would do today, but at the time, I was so green. I think Literally I, green. I, right, I think I tried to pretend that my response wasn't my response. And, I, you know, if I could do life over again, that embarrassing moment, I'd probably talk about it. Yeah. Oh, what would you say? I'd say, you know, I, I know you're offering this to me. And I really appreciate it. I really do. And I, this is not kind of... I don't like this. Yeah. And so I don't know how to say no thank you without being a jerk. Right. And I also don't want to offend you if I can't eat it. Right. Um, so I'm really kind of stuck. I don't know what to do right now. Right. Because therapeutically, it's an opportunity. Yeah. And this is another paradigm shift that I see a lot of therapists struggle with. Yeah. Is that that you, you know, have clearly made the shift in my estimation. I mean, in the way that I personally think therapists ought to, mm -hmm. in that we enter the field. This, what I tell people as they enter the field, I say, there was you before you were a therapist, and then there's the you as a therapist. <laughs> now, you can keep the you in your regular life, but there's a different you that is the therapist. Um, to some extent, I also disagree with that and that I want to be myself as there. But, of course. The, but the difference is like culturally you is different. I'm not explaining this well. My point is, is that when you are a therapist, you don't have to follow the cultural rules anymore because you're there with a, on a mission to help. You're there on a mission to heal, to help, to illuminate, to further, to deepen, to challenge to you're you're not there to socialize no. if someone in your personal life offered you soup you would choke it down and you would complain about it later <laughs> and all like or i would but as a therapist it's this opportunity to talk about things just be like you know what here's what i'm thinking and i'm and i'm i feel really bad about this but you know, this is, and I'm sort of in this bind. Yeah. How do you feel about that? Right. You know, what what do you want to do? Now you're in a, it's a little tense, but it's it's like, it, it pushes the relationship deeper. Yep. Instantly, really. Yes. Provides this opportunity to see, for you to assess how, how your client's going to react to that. She gets angry. She gets sad. She gets passive. She makes a joke. She's real or, you know, who knows what she's going to do. And it's an opportunity to see what she does. And it provides an opportunity to provide treatment because, say, her feelings are hurt. Right. And, and then you start talking about, oh, so it's, it kind of seems like I might have hurt your feelings. Is that right? Right. 
Yeah, I, I, I guess you did. Okay, well, let's talk about that. Um, Maybe it doesn't feel like I turned down soup. Maybe it feels like I turned down you. Yeah, right. Implied that you're not turning down her. Right. And that you're conscious of that and you care. Yes. And again, a simple interaction around soup instantly deepening the relationship, which again, we know when handled right is the primary cause of positive outcomes in therapy. Yeah. So along these lines, I will often tell supervisees that when you make a mistake as a therapist, when you make a mistake in regular life, often people will just sort of hope for the best and move on. You know, you go to a dinner party, you say something stupid yeah. and you, the next day you ruminate on it and yeah. you think, Oh my God, I can't believe I said that. I've never done that. <laughs> and, and people, you know, around you be like, ah, it's no big deal. And so, you know, you just, you know, that's what you do as a therapist. There's always the next session and you come back and you say, so last session I said this thing right. and I, I ruminated on it later and I, I felt bad for saying it. But I don't really know how it landed with you. And so, you know, how was that for you? Right. And if, if the client says something like, well, yeah, it was kind of. Now you have, again, you have this opportunity to, to deepen the relationship and to process in a new way that clients sometimes have never had the opportunity to do with people. No one ever gave them that sort of respect or that kind of honesty. And so that's what I mean by now that you're a therapist or when you're a therapist, you don't have to follow those regular social mores. Yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? And probably shouldn't. Right. And, and right. And shouldn't. That's the point. Good yeah. point. It's like, not only is it an option, but you shouldn't follow. Right. You, you should really think about that. Then there are some cultural norms. Sure. Like not punching people in the face. Always a good idea. Always a good idea to not punch people. In the face. Okay. Another ethical consideration. The last one here is records probably have to be a little bit more elaborate when you do in-home therapy because there's more opportunities for something to go wrong. You probably have to be, like, for instance, you walk into the house and suddenly grandpa is there and grandpa says, oh, the therapist is here. Oh, okay, I'll go upstairs. You might want to actually document that just, just in case there's a situation where Grandpa comes forward and says, "Well, yeah, I talked with with the with the uh, therapist on that day," and you're like, "Huh?" And you don't remember the circumstances. You want to write down, "Grandpa was there. He said this, and he left the room." Because if there's a problem and you don't have it documented, they could say, "Why didn't you document it?" And you might not have enough data, even yourself, to remember how to defend yourself in a situation like that. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, okay. Now, one thing that I get a lot from females, oh, right. therapists, like patron Veronica, is safety. Right. And I'll tell you this, is that I've never ran into a situation that was actually unsafe. I've, all, I've very rarely felt unsafe, but I'm a man, which is a different context. Yeah. When you're a woman, you have to deal with a different reality and different set of risks than you do when when you're a man. So the other thing I'll say is most of the in-home therapists I know, in fact, 98% of them are women, and they will all tell you that it's fine. The risk is extremely low. They've done tens of thousands of in-home sessions and had hardly anything ever concern them. So so the the risk is actually from my anecdotal information, extremely, extremely low. Now, can, the, to me, the, the biggest risk is being in bad neighborhoods where someone could potentially assault you, I guess. But again, never heard that before. I'm sure it happens. But it would be the same as if you were on walking the dog through a bad neighborhood and someone attacked you. So it's not like being a therapist changes that. So the things that people will say is maybe not do sessions at night, maybe uh, bring some mace, <laughs> think about the way you dress, uh, use your head, be have situal, situational awareness, think about where you're parking, um, that kind of stuff. Maybe Any other ideas you have? Have somebody know where you are. Yeah, have someone know where you are. If you're very concerned, have a plan for, you know, getting checkup on after, Right. you know, like if you don't hear from me. Right. But I'd say these are extreme. Right. 
And like you say, the risk is very, very, very small. Right. People watch too much news and TV, basically. Right. We have an overblown, in my estimation, sense of danger in the world. Certainly bad things happen, but the chance of something happening to you while you're in a neighborhood walking up to someone's door and going inside and then walking out, or even from the client themselves, the chance of something happening is extremely slim. slim. If someone was a psychopath and wanted to kill you, they could do that in your office. That's what I always say to people if they're worried about in-home therapy. I'm like, I'm like, so if you have a client that is a serial killer and is dedicated to killing you, they don't care where they do it. In fact, yeah. they'd probably get more pleasure killing you in your own office. It would be safer. <laughs> right. And so to, to say like, well, what if they're a serial killer? Well, it doesn't change. If, they yeah. wanna, if someone wants to kill you, they're going to kill you. Yeah. And the fact that it almost never happens, I don't even know of a case where it's happened. I'm, I'm sure it must have, but you don't hear about them very... I've never heard I've of one. I've never heard of one. It, it says that the risk is so low, it's just, in my view, just not worth really considering. Yeah. So any final thoughts on in-home therapy for patron Veronica? Any, any final thoughts for her? Probably just go do it. Just go do it. Your impulse is to do it, and if you follow this advice, I think you should be fine. Um, oh, also, uh, I think we touched, so she says, I realized that the patient's spouse would be at home during right. the visit. That uh, could be a good thing. Right, that could be a good thing. You can actually start, as, as a systemic therapist myself, I say, involve the spouse. Right. Uh, but if you don't want to do that, then you just have to uh, define the frame and have a conversation with the client about whether or not you want the spouse involved or not, da-da-da. You probably want to outline the, outline the pros, though, because my guess is if it's hoarding... Involving the spouse is probably integral to success. Right. At least with you or a different professional, if you want to involve a different professional in the family therapy. So, yeah. Uh, uh, Overall, I'll say that, and in my career, I loved doing the in-home therapy uh, period. Oh, the other thing we didn't talk about is charging for driving time. Oh, Do not hesitate to charge for driving time. Right. If it takes an, a half an hour to drive there and a half hour home, charge for that. Yeah. You're providing a wonderful service to someone. They don't have to make that trip. Don't undervalue your time. Yeah. It's your time. Now, maybe you don't charge the full amount because you're just you're not working that hard driving out there. Right. But but you can. I, I tell my supervisees to just charge per hour yeah. and and have that be that. Yeah. Um so think, don't be afraid to do that. Or have the session be shorter, like 15 minutes there, half hour in the house, 15 minutes home, or some, some kind of some, thing. Something. Just because you should... The, the reason why I'm saying this is when I first did in-home as a private practitioner, I would not charge for driving because I, would, I had low self-esteem professionally, yeah. <laughs> essentially. Right. And uh, eventually I started charging for that time and clients were fine to pay for it. Yeah. So, so I think... It's, it's a good idea to value your time in that way. If you observe your own limit, you will not burn out. Right. That's another thing, yeah. And, you know, student loans. <laughs> Have you paid off your student loan? Yes. Okay, good. But not because of earnings as a therapist. Yeah? No. Your earnings as a prostitute? or Yeah. yeah. My, uh, the crack dealer. The crack, crack, no. crack dealing? No. Um, $40,000 in debt. Yeah. Walking out of graduate school and yeah. paid that down over a period of six years and made virtually no progress with it. Yeah. Because um, you're paying like interest only. Interest or, only. Yeah. And, you know, I I made less than you coming out of graduate school yeah. by quite a bit. Well, you also didn't work 70 hours a week. Uh, yes. Less per hour and less hours. Yeah. That's true. Um, the, yeah. You were amazing. I was 80 grand in debt. Yes. And... 30 grand of it was credit cards, credit cards, 20% APR. Yeah. So I was freaking out and decided to work 70 hours a week to Dude. get out of that hole. Yeah. So it took you five years? Less than that. It only, it took me, uh, because I was essentially, because so I was working 70 hours a week. I had basically two full-time jobs ish, you yeah. know, like, or one full-time, two part-time. And 
I paid it off in like three years or something. Amazing. Yeah. Absolutely amazing. Well, it's, it's amazing. Well, and the other thing was, was I lived like a college kid. You, you know what I mean? I, I do. I, I lived I was in, there. A, in a shitty place and had a shitty car and bought Top Ramen yeah. while I was earning a professional income. Right. You know what I mean? And so all my extra income was going, going into your debt, going into the debt. And then once I was out of debt, I scaled back my hours and then right. just sort of coasted from there. But, but anyway, we so how lucky. did you pay off your... We, we, I had a condo. Oh. I bought a condo and then Seattle Real Estate... Went up. I sold the condo then for you... quite a bit of money and uh, more than I paid and suddenly no debt. I and mean, that was... You paid off your debt from that. Fabulous. Wow. Yeah. 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 And I don't know how they do it nowadays because my student loan interest rate was 2.4%. Oh, mine wasn't. Mine was like... Six and a half. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's kind of what it is now. I, yeah. I don't know how people do it. Huh. Well, the thing I tell people is to, as soon as you can, get out of agency work. Yeah. Because that, that's what you were primarily oh, doing. five years. Yeah. Your, your, your private practice wasn't, wasn't off the ground at that point. No, I pretty much fell ass backwards into my private practice, uh, having quit my agency job after just being sick of not the clinical work. The clinical work was great. Um, it was the bureaucracy and all the, you know, stuff that goes with an agency yeah. that was just tiresome. Didn't you have a weird boss or something? Several. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, that does it for that episode of psychology in Seattle. Thanks for writing in patron Veronica. I hope we answered your questions. Let us know what you think. If you're a in-home therapist out there, or you have thoughts about this or you're, you've been a client for in-home therapy. Let us know what your experience is. I'd, I'd be curious to hear what your experience is. All right. That does it for the episode. Thanks for joining us out there. Please take care of yourself because would you like to say the ending line? What is the, you ending? deserve it. You deserve it. So I'll say it again. Take care of yourself because you deserve it. You're very good at this, Bob. <laughs>